okay, Foster Care Nation, quick little admission here. I know that you all have noticed that the show has not been terribly consistent this first part of the year. It's been a rough year. I'm not going to lie. I don't have anybody to do any of the editing for me, and it takes some time. Today's episode took a little bit longer to, to listen to and get edited up because there was quite a bit of internet gremlins that were trying to get in the way, and so it's taken me a little longer than it should have to get it in here. And let's be honest, right now I have three kids in my house who are under the age of two, and that's only half of them. We have a lot of stuff going on. We had a recent emergency room visit down to the children's hospital. Um, everybody's safe and fine and okay, but uh, we thought we were going to have to go into surgery for some stuff. So we've had a lot of things going on. So if you notice, we're a little bit off our off of our rhythm this year. It's because we have been super, super busy. We just brought a newborn into the house as well. So we are ridiculously busy. So yeah, yeah. We're going to be a little off on our on our schedule of putting episodes out, and I apologize for that. But I think you guys of all audiences will understand that. Uh, I also want to mention that if you guys have the opportunity, if you have the resources, and this show has helped you in any way, I would appreciate it so much if you guys could help us out with a little bit. I'm trying to find somebody who can edit this show for me and help me get back on a good schedule, but that takes money that I don't have yet. So if you're so inclined and the show has helped you, you, you want to encourage us, please feel free to look on our, on our show notes. There's links to the Patreon account and the Buy Me a Coffee account. And to those who have donated, thank you so very much. And I want you just to know that this particular episode had quite a bit of uh, internet gremlins in it. But, but it's like one of those bad dreams you wake up from that you just can't shake. Except Philip. Philip can't wake up from this dream because this is his life. He had an incredibly traumatic childhood. So listen up, guys. I apologize for the internet gremlins, but I promise you it's worth it. You can forget a lot of things, Foster Care Nation, but never forget this. You're listening to Unparalleled Studio. Signal. Foster Care Nation. Listen up. This is Strength for the powerless Courage for the fearful Hope and healing for wounded hearts Hello and welcome back to Foster Care and Unparalleled Journey with Jason Palmer. All right, ladies and gentlemen, today I bring a guest to you who is an author and an all-around interesting dude with a story that I think we can maybe scratch the surface of today. I have Mr. Philip Harder here with me today, and how are you doing, man? I'm doing pretty good. Okay. Doing pretty good. A lot of times I'll ask people how they got into this whole foster care thing, like foster care and adoptive journeys and, and how all you, you found your way into it. Um, but I know that you're an author and I don't want to not like give people a little bit of an access into your life. So you have a book. Can you tell us what the title is and where they can find it? Yeah, the title is uh, miracles in the making. It's uh, book one of 
probably a three-part series. Um, it's going to be available on Amazon uh, on, on June the 1st is our, our launch date, projected March launch date. If, every, if I can get everything done between now and then, um, that's the expectation. And, uh, yeah, really excited about that. Been a long time coming. <laughs> All right. Is it available for pre-order on, on Amazon yet? I don't think it is yet. Um, that's a terrible answer, but, uh, <laughs> I, I don't have a better one. So <laughs> that's what you get. <laughs> hey, I, I hear you. I hear you. I've, I've looked at, at the whole like author thing and, and man, that's a challenge to get all that, that authoring thing figured out and, and getting everything together and put together and then dealing with the, uh, the different outlets that sell it. So I, I actually have, I have something that I wrote for a book that when it's available, anybody listening, I will definitely talk about it, but it's, it's, uh, a book that was written about uh, the grief of child loss because we lost our oldest daughter several years ago, oh, wow. but about six and a half years ago. Now is where we're at. And, uh, and it's, it's a book about child loss from a father's perspective. And it's actually several fathers are authors of each chapter. So it'll be an interesting book. So once that's available and I'll, I'll definitely mention that, but thank God I was, I was uh, approached by a, a woman who's writing this book and she asked me to write a chapter. So I had to do the hard work of writing it. And that's all I have to do. <laughs> well, I wish that, you know, I, you did the hard part of surviving it first so that you would have something to write. True. Um, so I would say that's, that's kind of the overlooked part when you write something is you have to have experienced something that goes into that. Um, for me, that was the, you know, I think that was the part that you, you don't think about very much. Uh, when you look at, when you pick up a book to read it, you don't think about the life that's gone into that um, to give that perspective. Oh, yeah. Now, you sent me um, the the opening part of your book and then, and then a PDF copy of the book. And I'm not going to lie, I did not have time to sit down and read <laughs> the whole thing. But I definitely yeah. read enough to know that you did the hard part of, of living your story. You have, you have quite the story. Yeah. Um, you know, there's, there's a few things. The book is a fictional book and there's some good reason for that. I mentioned that in the, in the bio that I sent you because, you know, in my life, because of the things that I endured in my childhood, um, my memories are not very dependable. And, um, and we'll talk about that. I'm sure we'll get into that, but, and so I had to write the book as a fiction work, uh, but believe me, the uh, the emotion that's there is real, um, and that's what I hope comes through, and I hope it resonates with people uh, who um, have a heart uh, for kids um, that have been affected by trauma and also for survivors that have been affected by trauma. I hope it resonates with those two um those two populations so oh yeah because i think by now you're probably an expert when it comes to trauma um because <laughs> you, you've lived through a lot of it and that's super important to realize most people don't don't understand that you know we we have schools who are all trauma informed and i'm of the belief that most schools do their best to intellectually you know, inform people about and teachers and counselors and administrators about, about trauma. But until you've lived it, until you've actually lived trauma, it's a whole different animal because not only, 
not only having the experience, but the after effects. The thing is, is really bad things happen in your life. And, and after it happens, it doesn't go away. After you found a resolution point, you've gotten through the trauma. It doesn't go away. It affects you for a good part of your life. And from my experience, um, the dad's group that I, that I'm a part of, I, I can tell you, I've met 50 year old men who have not even begun to approach their trauma story. And so sometimes it'll affect you through your whole life. And even once you work your way through it, it will still affect your life in different ways. And I see that every day. Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, it, it's true. And it's, there's a difference between, I mean, you go through trauma and that's one perspective. And then if you really get to the place where, you know, by the grace of God and the support system that you have, and you are able to process that trauma, you get a different perspective. And then if you, if you have the the ability to work with kids or individuals that have also had trauma and you've seen it from the outside looking in, that's yet another perspective. So you do, you get like all these different facets of trauma, which, you know, I don't want to glorify trauma because that's not what it's about. It's really about survival and resilience that, that I really want to, you know, that's my goal is to help kids find that and to help individuals, you know, recognize that and the things that build resilience. So how did you end up in, you know, dealing with the foster care system in the first place? How'd you, how'd you get into this? Well, I, I wish I could tell you, I remember that, (laughs) but the truth is I don't. Um, I know I was born premature and that's not uncommon. And I spent a couple years in and out of the hospital and sometime around two is when that chapter of my life sort of ended. And it was right about that same time um, that my, I, I was taken into care into uh custody for the first time uh, because of, you know, abuse and neglect and and those types of things. And so that was before I could remember anything. And then, you know, dozens of times uh, throughout my childhood, we were, you know, we would be returned to my parents. And then for whatever reason, you know, we would be taken back into custody. And there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, the biggest reason I would tell you is that, you know, that this it, generational trauma thing is real. And so I had, you know, parents who didn't know how to deal with their own trauma and didn't didn't have a, a reference point for how to how to raise children. Um, and so as a result of that, they didn't do a very good job at times. And also that you know, coupled with the, the time that I was born in, it was, you know, pre-internet. So, um, agencies weren't very well connected. And so as you moved from place to place, kind of the process would just sort of start over again. And so from the time I was two until the time I was about eight, I was, you know, constantly in this revolving door in and out of the system, moving from home to home. And, um, and then it, at Eight, I was in, in an interesting place there. That was a, a, a cult compound we were in. And then, you know, when I was nine, I went to my aunt's house. And then I was there technically until I was 16 when I aged out. But then I went away to school and some other things. So I wasn't really present 
Um, but um, so I really, when I was 16 is when I got the letter from the state of Louisiana saying that, you know, we're not responsible for you anymore. You have a nice life, you know, uh, but pretty much from the time I was two until the time I was 16, I was in the foster system or, you know, in some in some process of transition. Um, you know, I'd like to, to go ahead and think that all foster homes are great places. Um, but I've talked to one too many people to believe that's an, an accurate statement. Um, I know having right. read your bio that, that they weren't all good places. Yeah. You know, I, I was in some pretty tough places. Um, and between the foster homes and group homes that I was in, some of them were really tough places. And I've gotten a little bit of perspective on that now um, and understanding, you know, the worst, one of the worst of those placements was, was a relative placement. And I've gotten a little perspective on that now to realize that, you know, that was, you know, that was, again, that was a person who had a lot of unresolved trauma of their own. And, and then that, you know, she wanted to help, but was probably ill-equipped and and not very well supported in doing so. And so that became really traumatic for for us as kids. But you know, there is there is something that I would I, I want to make sure I get to with your audience because um, I've listened to several of your shows lately, and you know, I I know that you you have a lot of people listening that are foster parents that maybe just have a brief interaction with their foster kids you have them for a little bit and then they're gone and you wonder what kind of a difference that makes um and you know i don't remember being in a good stable safe home as a kid i don't remember that but from the time i was young i know there's always been a contrast that was drawn between what I, what I was seeing and what I felt like was supposed to happen. Um, and if you, if you will allow me to, I'll tell you a brief story that happened when I was 18 that I think will really be an encouragement to people. Um, I, uh, when I turned 18, my, my aunt that had been my foster mother handed me a Walmart sack and it was supposed to be a life book, but it wasn't. It was a Walmart sack of photocopied pictures that was supposed to tell the story of my life. And so when I got that, I was looking through there and I found a picture. And I guess based on how old we were in the pictures that, you know, those pictures were from the time I was about six or seven years old. And on the bottom of that picture, it was a copy of a Polaroid picture, there was a name of a foster mother on that picture. And so um, I was really interested at that point in trying to kind of decipher some of my past. And so I got online and I looked this person up and I found her. I found, well, I found a couple of phone numbers that I thought might be her. And so I called this woman and I said, you know, first I said, are you, um, I think her name was Janie Fugit. I said, are you Janie Fugit? And uh, she said, yes, I am. And, and I said, this is going to sound really weird, but 
were you a foster parent around 1986? And there was a pause on the line and she came and just a few seconds later, she said, Philip. And we went on to have a conversation where she explained that, you know, they had had us in their home um, for uh, just a few months um, in that time. And that during that time, we had had the holidays with the Christmas and so forth. And so she said, every Christmas we get together and her bio kids and they all get together and they talk about us and they wonder what happened to us. And so we had a, a conversation kind of giving her a little bit of rundown of what happened to us. Uh, but just hearing her voice and talking to her, I recognized that there was a peace in me and knowing how much they cared. And you could hear that in her voice. And I realized, I, I believe with everything in me, that that tether that I had to something good, that standard that I had that I couldn't place was because of the short time that we were in that home. And, um, and I'll tell you, I don't have, I don't have memories of that. Um, and I kind of told you a little bit why that is, but because of my trauma and some of the psychological trauma that we went through, um, I don't have memories of that time, but I'm very sure that that may very well be where that tether came from to something good, to something stable. And that's helped me as an adult to recognize what I needed to create for my own children. So don't underestimate the impact that you have, even if you only see these kids for a short time. Yeah. We've had lots of those placements with, that were short-term placements and I'm not going to lie. You always wonder what that turned out to be. There's a little boy who lives well, as far as I, the last place we knew he lived um, was about an hour and a half drive away from where we're at. And I'll always wonder what his memories are because mm. he had a pretty traumatic story before he came into care. And um, last I heard his mother was, was locked up for a good long while because she was just um, not, a, not, not really good at, at raising children in a healthy way. Um mm. So I, I personally, I'm no psychologist, but I would have diagnosed her with a couple different um, psychiatric illnesses. You know, it was it wasn't that hard to tell that there was a lot of problems there, and and right. the poor little guy, he took the brunt of it, and you know, you, you wonder. And I read stout to his dad through through social media once or twice, and and he never responds. So I'm just assuming that's that's a part of the life that that they don't want to go back and revisit. Although sure, what I can see by every now and then seeing the Facebook page, just knowing that, knowing that the kids are healthy, they're happy. Mm. I see actual smiles on their face and that, that gives me a peace of mind knowing that, that he is, you know, he's in a place where he's not being subjected to what he was before all that. And so you, you'll always, as a foster parent, you will always wonder, I can't imagine getting that phone call at some point years down the road because mm. I had to guess he's probably about 11 or 12 years old right now. Mm. I think that's about the age range he, he would be at. And so, you know, but most of our placements have been very young 
and they'll probably never remember us. Mm-hmm. And and that's just you know that's just what it will be for them. Um, so yeah, we we always kind of kind of wonder, and you hope that that short time matters. Sure. Well, they may not remember your face, and they may not remember your house, but they remain. But I believe that they'll remember the sense of safety, and that's based on my own experience. They'll remember the sense of safety. They'll remember what it feels like to be loved, because that is such a hunger in the heart of a kid that when they get it, it can't help but make an impact. Um, For their sake, I hope he doesn't remember my things. My wife is a much better memory. (laughs) You know, if anybody wants to know why, I'm not that hard to find on social media. And I'm a big brown guy with this weird hair thing going on and a great big black beard. And I have never been invited to join a beauty contest. Not once in my life. (laughs) Well, you and me both. You and me both. (laughs) I'm afraid I would be concerned if I was, to be honest. (laughs) I would wonder what they're really looking for. (laughs) That's in the quality control at that point. I feel you're first. Exactly. 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 So, uh, uh, for sure. Well, trauma is an interesting thing. And Mm -hmm. we have lots of trauma in our house. At this point, we have five kids still at home. And Mm -hmm. the stories range from neglect and abuse to holy crap, how did that happen? And they're still, they still survived to, you know, let's hope this kid doesn't end up becoming an ax murderer after what they went through. Um, We've heard all kinds of stories. So how has that trauma played out in your life as, as you went through your teen years and your early adulthood and, and, and moving on into a profession? Well, (laughs) sorry about that. Well, I will tell you, in my teen years, I was a mess. Um, I was, I was, I had a lot of, a lot of anger. um, And I had no idea what I was dealing with, because even though I had seen so many mental health professionals, um, I had not had a long enough relationship with any of them for it, for me to even learn what trauma was much less understand how to, how to deal with it or how to recognize its effects in my life. And so that would come much later. Um, but I dealt with a lot of just really explosive anger and a lot of what I would recognize later as PTSD symptoms where the, the trauma is there just below the surface. And so, you know, you're reacting to things that aren't happening in the present. You're reacting to things that are, you know, kind of programmed into you because of that trauma. And so I dealt with that a lot in my teenage years. Um, But I became, you know, in my middle school years, I wanted out. I was in an abusive situation. It was really tough, Um, physically abusive, relative placement. And I wanted out. And so I got an opportunity um, I saw an opportunity, I guess you would say, to uh, go to a boarding school, which, you know, was a way to get me myself about four hours away from this home. And, of course, when I asked about going there, um, my aunt laughed, laughed in my face and she said, you know, you can't go one day without getting in trouble. Why would I send you four hours away? Which she had a good point. She may have contributed to some of that, but but she had a good point. 
and I, 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 you know, I used to joke that when I was a kid that the principals were allowed to SWAT us in school. They could give us up to three SWATs a day. And I tried to get mine by 8 a.m. And school didn't start till 830. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, that kind of gives you an idea how my my elementary years went. Um, but when I saw that light, that opportunity when I was in the sixth grade, I, I made up my mind that I needed to I needed to take my life into my own hands and try to try to do something different. <clears throat> and so over the next two years, I didn't get in trouble. I got in trouble. I got sent to the office one time in those two years, and that was because a kid flipped me in the back of the neck with a rubber band, and I stood up and turned around. And I'll never forget, there was a new band teacher, and she wrote me up and sent me to the office and said I was going to hit him. You know, and I remember looking at her and saying, you should probably ask around about me because if I was going to hit him, you'd have picked him up off the ground because <laughs> I didn't have a going to hit like that wasn't a mode that I had. <laughs> if I was going to do something, it already happened. And so, you know, but, you know, that was that was a stark contrast from the way my life had been before that. And I also learned that I could get away from some of the trauma that I was dealing with at home through my academics. And so I, I committed myself to that. And so those two years in middle school, I was taking martial arts, which was really helping me with some mindfulness stuff and, and some other stuff that you know nobody else was teaching me, but I was learning it in martial arts and some self-control things that, again, really needed, I needed to pick those things up. And so I was able to get through those two years, improve my academics, stay out of trouble, and, and get out of that really tough situation, um, <clears throat> which gave me an assurance that I could actually control uh, my, own, my own life to some degree. I could, it was the first time in my life that I'd had any say whatsoever. Um, and so when I got to high school, I still had a lot of problems, but I was able to really focus in on my academics and I was pretty successful in school in that way and got to have a lot of opportunities to kind of go places and see things um, that I wouldn't have gotten to see um, in in any other place that I would have been at, you know, as a as a kid in the system. Um, and so that was that was actually a huge blessing to me. Um, I was still dealing with a lot of things. Um, I was dealing with a, a vision impairment that I was struggling with on top of all my trauma stuff, which I didn't even know. You know I had no idea the depth of that. Um, I was just the, the I was determined to put my past in the past. Uh, but as you said so well, you can't put trauma in the past. You can you can move beyond the behaviors that are the, you know, kind of the expression of that trauma, but you never, you never put trauma in the past. It, it's a part of you. It's a part of your makeup. And so you can recognize it. You can overcome, uh, you know, the things which that kind of make you stand out because of trauma. You can overcome some of those things and learn how to, um, to control that, but you don't really, you don't really leave it in the past. The other thing I was dealing with as a teenager, <laughs> I had some repressed memories. I had some, I had some implanted memories, which were intentionally implanted, which 
brought all of my other memories into question. And then I had some repressed memories that I, I didn't remember. But over the later years of my teenage years, I was beginning to figure out that they were memories. Um, and it was some of the worst of my trauma that I experienced that I had, you know, it was actually the sexual abuse part of my trauma experience that I had, I had repressed and I couldn't remember it at all. Um, but I would wake up in the morning, like I had had a dream and I couldn't remember it. Uh, but the emotional part of that was that I felt like somebody had died and no one cared. And I thought that, you know, in, in hindsight, that was pretty, uh, that was pretty profound in terms of the way I was coping with that. Um, because this, this abuse happened when I was pretty young. Um, and finally, you know, one day I remembered, you know, I couldn't remember it, but I had the same emotional sensation frequently. It was, it happened all the time. And so when I finally remembered what had happened to me, it kind of gave me, you know, some context for all that. Um, but, uh, you know, that was something else through my teenage years that I was trying to make sense of. And I started writing during that time, which was really helpful because I was able to kind of channel some of the emotion that I didn't really have, you know, memories to put with. I, that, that sounds really strange, but, um, you know, it, uh, you talk about PTSD and, uh, people don't think about that oftentimes enough when it comes to foster kids. Um, but I heard recently that more foster kids, more kids come out of the foster system with post-traumatic stress disorder than what come out of the military. And people would be shocked to hear that. Um, but it's, I think it's true. Um, but they, and you assume that when that happens in your life, that it's always going to be like the movies, you know, you're having flashbacks or you're having, um, you're having um, just violent outbursts or things like this. And, and that's a part of it. But really, it's a lot more than that, because sometimes it's just, it's just disproportionate emotions that don't seem to fit. And it's, you know, um, sometimes you don't have a picture of what happened. You just have you know, a certain smell that triggers you and you, you know that it's bad, but you don't know exactly why. Um, and so I dealt with a lot of that, just trying to make sense of it. And writing was a unique way for me to capture the parts of those memories that I remembered and give them a context. <clears throat> and that's kind of how I started writing. And then just stories had become an escape um, for a long time. So being able to create and write my own story was pretty empowering. Um, but yeah, the, the teenage years were tough. And then, you know, I, I managed to get, kind of get through school and, um, that was a huge milestone because, you know, very few people in my family had ever graduated from high school. Um, I think, uh, my, my parents, neither one graduated from high school. And so that was a big deal. And then I started college, and that was that was a big milestone because no one had ever been able to accomplish that before. Um, and I had some cousins that went to college. I'm not going to say nobody in my family went to college, but it was a rare thing. Um, but I I was you know sort of coming out of high school that I began to develop my relationship with God and and 
kind of starting to frame that part of me, which actually probably did more for me in terms of processing trauma than anything else that I ever could have experienced because it allowed me to learn some things about about the human body and how the trauma works without needing an intercessor of a person because I had such major trust issues that people, I didn't trust people very much. And so uh, that gave me an outlet to try to learn how to process things without needing to put my, put my trust in a person. Well, you mentioned something there that it did catch my, my, ear there uh you mentioned something about intentionally implanted memories can you tell me what what you mean by that well you know my uh my biological mother had a lot of a lot of mental health issues and um she had spent a lot of time in in um, psychiatric hospitals and so forth during her childhood and adolescence and even as an adult But, um, you know, I think she, they, she was especially desperate to gain credibility. She, uh, her paranoia caused her to feel like everybody was out to get her. Everybody was attacking her and, and the system was, was working together to oppose her. And so, um, she went out of her way to program memories into us and I, I remember um, vaguely, uh, but I used to remember more when I was, you know, when I was a kid and we were in therapy and we were able to kind of come back to this. But, you know, we had we had these atrocious memories of being um, tied to banisters in foster homes and being thrown off the roof and all these terrible things that um, were just unrealistic. They were not really possible and 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 they were incomplete memories like they didn't have all the components of a memory and and i remembered also you know my mother um having us to repeat these things and the goal in mind was that we would go and tell the psychologist and the, and the social workers as they evaluated us that we would tell these stories and that way you know she could justify you know them taking us away and feel like that they were you know attacking her and so she she made up these horrible stories and made us repeat them so that we would you know hopefully they would return us to her um and they were they were bad um and but really what it did in the long run is it caused me to distrust my memories um, my own memories of, of, of events. And so, um, I, I stopped, you know, a lot of times our memory is a muscle. The more we exercise it, but it works. And when you stop exercising that muscle, um, it, it doesn't work very well anymore. And so when I, when I begin to realize that so many of these memories were not possible we're not realistic we're not true it caused me not to remember much of anything um and so yeah that that was a part of my childhood i was probably six five six seven years old um when that was going on 
Yeah, that's, <clears throat> that sounds like a bit of brainwashing, which is kind of extreme for most kids to go through at any age, let alone at the, you know, at that young of an age. Yeah, that's exactly what it was. It was brainwashing. And, you know, we, you know, I think back, you know, and when I talked to that Janie Fugit, it was really interesting because she was a foster parent that I had during that same period of time. And, you know, she told me that, you know, when we were with them, it was terrible because my mother was hotlining them all the time and they kept having to take us to the hospital to be, you know, um, to be checked out to prove that they weren't abusing us because that was the, that was the narrative that my mother was pushing. And I'm sure there are other foster parents who've gone through that. And I, I wouldn't wish that upon anybody. You've already opened up your home, which is a, you know, sort of terrifying thing to do in and of itself. Um, but you know, that was the thing that, that we went through for some time trying to figure out what was real and what was not real. Um, when I was about nine, 10, 11, 12 years old, that was a big focus in my, in my therapy was just how do we figure out what's real and then how do I process my emotions and how should I feel towards my parents? Because every kid loves their parents. Um, but there's just a laundry list of things that we endured at their hands and, and I want to be fair, you know, not everything that we endured was, was a direct result. Of, um, I would say about 80% of what we went through was a direct or indirect result of our being in care or being, you know, um, in custody of the state. Um, and not that I think anybody, you know, did anything on purpose. I think it was a bunch of well-intended people in a system that was way too big. And, and our situation was especially rough because my parents, they kind of had an MO of going into an area and exhausting what resources they could find from all of the organizations that were in that area. <clears throat> and then they would gather up and move to the next area. And so it, it put these agencies behind the eight ball in terms of, you know, as soon as they began to understand what was happening, then we would move and they had no way of tracking us back then. There was no internet. There was no, uh, there was very little collaboration between uh, jurisdictions. And so when we would move to a new area, you know, we were kind of, you know, lost in the system, so to speak. And so they had to start over from scratch, which caused it, you know, that just caused it to drag on and on and on. Um, but then also, I think that my parents were so difficult to deal with, my mother in particular, because she was highly intelligent, as well as being very mentally distressed. And so she could make it very difficult on the authorities. And so they, in several different occasions, chose to, you know, dispense of her rather than that, rather than having to fight that fight. Um so, you know, those things just kind of drag on. Uh, it caused my experience to last a lot longer than I think it would if I was in care today. Um, well, I'd love to say that the system is all good and fixed now, but um, <laughs> I'm not quite that uh, that out of touch with reality. The system is made of people. 
and no people are perfect. And so um, if, if the system was based on me, there would certainly be aspects of it that weren't, were, weren't, were far from perfect because I'm far from perfect. You know what I mean? And so I think that for me, it's, we have to acknowledge, unfortunately, that there's a dark underbelly to the world that we live in. And once we realize that, which that's, that's the world that this system is born into. Right. And so then there's, a lot of people trying to do the best they can and governments trying to do the best they can. Um, but it's just never going to be perfect. It's a fallen world and we see it. I think we see it when we're dealing with kids uh, that are affected by this system, especially uh, how broken people can be. And if you want to see just how broken the uh, governmental system are, just drive up and down the interstate. And see how good of a job they do with the roads. Yeah. Right. You're right. Yeah, I'm always kind of blown away by just how much brokenness is supposed to be creating a healthy place for kids. And don't get me wrong. I I don't think that everybody in the system has bad intentions because they do not definitely. But I also know that we've had great caseworkers. And we've had some pretty lousy caseworkers as well. And, um, and that makes it really difficult sometimes to, uh, to be able to navigate some of these, some of these situations that you find yourself placed in. Um, we're, we're been in the middle of some really sticky situations and as foster parents, you sign up to help a kid, right? And right. then God only knows what you're going to bring into your house because you're not just bringing a kid into your house. You're bringing their trauma. And, you know, you mentioned that hotline thing, you know, we, the first time you get kind of nervous about it and <laughs> right. there goes the fire truck right by the house. Hopefully everybody's okay. <laughs> but, but yeah, the first time you get a little bit nervous about, about the, uh, the, the uh, hotline call, but at some point I hate to admit this, but you get used to it and you just, it's just another day in the life. And, and we've been hotlined on more than once. And it's always come back unfounded, but it's oftentimes the place, the only place where people feel like they have any agency in their own life. Right. Well, and I think, you know, I welcome, you know, I've, I've been hotlined in my own life a couple of times. And again, it was unfounded, but, but I was always grateful for that because I recognize you know, there is there there is a lot of darkness and there is a lot of terrible things that happen to kids. And so when I saw that happen in my own life and and I was very grateful for it because it means that there are people out there that are looking out for the welfare of children. And no matter how broken that is, that is a very, very important thing. Um, and, you know, I can't imagine how many kids you know, probably would have lost their lives if we didn't have that system in place to rescue them or to at least check out what's happening. And so I, it's inconvenient, you know, it's, it's, it's humiliating at times the way it's handled. And, and uh, I've heard horror stories, like I'm sure you have um, about those experiences, but at the end of the day, there's, you know, there's not a whole lot that they could put me through if I'm an honest, if I'm honest and I'm doing what I need to be doing as a parent and I'm taking care of my kids and I'm, 
you know, protecting them the way I should be, there's very few things that should be able to come into my life that would make it so terrible that it would be worth um, leaving all those kids out there without a, without a hope that they would be, that's the condition they would be in if there wasn't a child welfare system, you know, and, and I was petrified the first time I had to, I actually had to bring them into my life because of a situation that happened that, you know, a, a threat came into my, my home from outside and I had so much trauma with the child welfare system and so much, um, just, I was petrified of this system because of everything that we had endured. And then I had to pick up the phone and make a phone call that I knew was going to bring them into my world. And it terrified me. And I just finally had to say, you know, I'm going to trust the Lord ultimately, but I'm going to trust this system that my experience is not the norm that, you know, most of the people involved with this system are trying to help kids. And uh, and so I had to make the call that I knew would bring them into my life. And that was terrifying. Um, but I can tell you, you know, it came to a good end. Um, nothing happened to us. It, it happened exactly the way it should have. Uh, they did what they needed to do, and I was grateful for that. But, boy, it was a tough, it was a tough call to make. <laughs> oh, I bet. I bet yeah, because the uh, the system isn't always always known for handling things right. So when they do get it right, you get we do have to give them credit for that for sure. So absolutely. So so you walk through all the all that growing up and and came out the other end as a what we would call an adult, right? Uh, <laughs> right. We, some days <laughs> we call them adults at eighteen for some reason because when I look back at eighteen, the eighteen year old Jason made some amazingly stupid decisions <laughs> right i mean I, i'm i'm impressed i'm still surviving but you know what where did that lead you as an adult what 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 have you you done with your life since then well um i i got married young um i can just tell you that i think you know one of the one of the things i would caution any young people that might be listening to your show is be very careful because in the absence of family, we sometimes seek that out and we're willing to, we're willing to accept things that we would never accept otherwise. And that's a dangerous thing. Um, and so, you know, I was very young. I got married very young. I was 19 years old when we got married. She was 19 as well. And, um, you know, we thought I thought we did our homework. I thought we knew what we were doing. Of course, all nineteen-year-olds think they know what they're doing. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I having, you know, I have a nineteen-year-old now, and so I have a whole different perspective on it than I did then. Um, but you know, we we got married. I, I went to Bible college that a month later, and uh, two years later, a year later, we started having babies. Uh, it was almost two years later. And, you know, I had no idea what a healthy home was supposed to look like. Um, and so I, you know, I put, I read everything I could put my hands on about parenting and about what a Christian, a good, a good stable Christian home should look like. And, um, and I wish I could tell you that that equipped me to do everything right. <laughs> it didn't. 
Um, but, you know, that marriage lasted 20 years and we got five amazing kids out of it. And, uh, you know, people would ask me, you know, things like, well, didn't you figure out where they came from? We did. And I just can't figure out which one I want to send back. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but, you know, that that's intended to be humorous. Uh, but I, I love all my kids. It was the, the it, having children was so important to my healing journey because I had grown up thinking that I was something worth throwing away um, because that's in essence what happened. You know, nobody wanted us enough uh, to keep us. My parents didn't want us enough to do what they needed to do to keep us. And this was, you know, this is hindsight. This is without the processing of now, but this is how I felt. And the foster homes that we went to, the dozens and dozens of foster homes that we went to, in my mind as a child, I thought they didn't want me enough to keep me either. And that was like branded into my psyche. It was part of my um, part of my identity. And then, then I held my oldest daughter at the hospital. And I remember looking at her and thinking she was the most wonderful thing that God had ever created. And um, that I was in awe that he would let me be dad. And that happened four times. And you know, I, I don't remember exactly when it happened, but at some point, my babies, I, I realized it clicked in my head. You need to be one of those. And you should have been valued like that. The way I feel about my children is how my parents should have felt about me. And that, that did something. That, that healed something that was broken inside of me. And um, it, it, it's amazing now looking back because I, I don't know how to, to really quantify that, but I know it was tremendous. Um, and so, you know, you go through that and you try to be a parent. And then I went into, you know, uh, church ministry. I was in church ministry for 20 years and doing youth ministry and pastoring. And, you know, and you learn how to love people. And, you know, my experience was that the only way I could learn how I was loved was by loving people. And that probably sounds backwards, um, but that's the way it worked for me. Um, and so, uh, but my kids were a big part of that. They, they, they taught me a lot. And then, um, and then that, you know, interestingly, you know, then that, that marriage broke apart and I was, my career was gone because I resigned my, obviously my ministry position. Um, the home that we owned together, I was not in that anymore. I was barely seeing my kids. And again, that was an opportunity for me to figure out, to really come face to face with some of my, my trauma that I hadn't dealt with yet. 
um, along with the new trauma that I was experiencing. So you get a different perspective on all of those things at that point um, at, you know, 39 years old. Um, but I can say, you know, that the thing that has made it first for me is realizing that there's something myself. And I think in your experience and in my experience, a lot of our audience is probably going to be on the same path, but I learned some things, you know, that I recognized as a kid that trauma is a relative thing because, you know, here I was on this journey and I'd seen all these things and I was always the new kid everywhere I went. But I can sit in the end of the playground that to me seemed very, very trivial. And so I had learned as a child that trauma is pretty, pretty relative to the to the circumstances and the, and the individual that's that's experiencing it. And so as an adult, then I got that in scripture where it says, you know, there's there's not really anything you're going through that's all that different than what everybody else is going through. It's just maybe in a different context. Um, and I know that sounds strange because there are experiences that are different, but emotionally, the way we react internally, I think it's the same. So when you realize that, it gives you perspective to say, okay. And, and then on top of the message that says there's that's happening to you that there isn't a way out of that's a powerful message um and if you get that and 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 lean into it a little bit then you can actually it forces you to find solutions instead of just identifying problems and i think that was a big part of my journey is beginning to realize that you know i could focus on the problem i could focus on the trauma i could focus on all the terrible things that happen or I could choose to focus on the good things that were happening. I could choose to focus on my kids. I could choose to focus on my, you know, the fact that, at the, you know, I had, I had these great things that had happened in my life that most of those were as an adult, but I could look at that and I could think, you know, that's really good. And I don't know that I realize how good that is if things hadn't been really bad, you know, at the start. So, I don't know if that answers your question, but <laughs> yeah, I think the only part that I would agree with you on there is that, um, the most perfect little thing that, that ever was born um, while well, she lives in my house. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, uh, they all become all teenagers, right? Right. <laughs> That's true. Most all of mine are now. <laughs> and then, I, yeah, you look at him and go, "What happened to you? You used to be cute." No, <laughs> <laughs> don't say that's terrible, daughter. <laughs> uh, I know, right? But no, I've said it to mine. She said meaner things to me, so we are okay. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, uh, but you know, it's just it's just an interesting, you know, hindsight. And you asked me about my career and what I did. I did the ministry thing for 20 years and then you know but I always felt like I was missing something like you know there's a scripture that says he that knows to do good and doesn't do it to him it is sin 
And so I always struggled with realizing that like I have a knowledge, I have an awareness of what happens in this system with these kids and I need to be involved. I need to be involved. That voice never left my head. And so, you know, when I left my pastoral ministry and I really began to just pray about what, what am I supposed to do now? Because I realized that, you know, I'd never been here before. Um, but if anything that I believed about my God was true, then he's been here a lot of times before. And it wasn't an accident that I was here and it wasn't, you know, he wasn't at a loss to figure out what to do now, you know. And so I began to just ask, you know, what am I supposed to do? And so I began to really feel like it was time uh, to get back involved with, you know, with with where I came from. And I kind of have always felt a connection to that. And and so I've transitioned into working in behavioral health and working with kids that have endured some pretty terrible trauma. I'm going to college now. I'm going to, I'm going to college to be uh, for social work and psychology so that I can um, hopefully, you know, kind of be a voice um, in the, in the ear of some of these kiddos that, that says, you know, this, this really sucks right now, but, but you can get through it. And that's the thing that I think, too many times we want to act like it isn't a big deal and you know we want to rationalize it either that or we're so shocked by what they're going through or what they've been through that you know we we almost can't address it at all um but these kids need us to be real with them um that's what i needed that's what I longed for. The, 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 the aching of my heart the whole time I was growing up, the first thing I would throw in people's face all the time when they would try to, you know, hold me accountable for anything I would throw in their face. You have no idea where I've been. You don't know what I've been through. And what I longed for in that was for somebody to say, yeah, but maybe I do. <laughs> Maybe you're not the only one that's ever gone through something like this. And I never got that. But that that cry in that heart of that kid is still there. And so my hope and my prayer is that I might be able to be the guy at some point that says, you know, my experience isn't just like yours, but you're also not the only person that's gone through this. And there's some there's some real hope. Um that, that can be had even in terrible circumstances. Um, and that's something that, man, you just can't buy that with money. Yeah. I'm reminded of, um, are you familiar with Josh? Yeah. I've heard the name. Josh was a, a former foster youth who, who went through a pretty rough go. He tells a story uh, publicly. I've seen a number of times. I think he's got at least one, if not multiple Ted talks out there. And uh, the quote he's most known for is every, every child is one caring adult away from a success story. And um, I love it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, and, and that's, that's what that reminds me of is he, he found a platform where he tells anybody who's willing to listen, you're not the only one I've been through some rough stuff as well. And he mm -hmm. tells the story pretty openly. And I think those, that's why I love mm -hmm. stories like this because 
Yes, they're horrible and they're horrific. And you mentioned, you know, everything from physical and mental and sexual abuse and, and all kinds of, and, and occult and all kinds of craziness. But at the end of the day, yeah. you came out of that and you're out there as a grown man attempting to help kids. Like you've, you've turned that, you know, what the enemy meant for evil, you've turned it for good. You know, there's a saying, there's a scripture that says, you know, it's about Paul and Paul's going through, you know, some kind of an infirmity. They speculate it might have been visual, but, you know, he, he's asked three times for the Lord to take it away. And the Lord says to him, you know, my grace is enough for you. For my strength is completed. That word perfect is perf- made perfect. It means completed. My, my strength is completed in your weakness. And I think sometimes we're so busy trying to be strong that we never let anybody help us. You know, and I think in my life, especially when you go through this kind of garbage, you know, you honestly, you're trying so hard to be your own strength. And the, the, the thing about being a kid is you're not supposed to have to do that. And so I think for us to be able to come alongside of, of kids that have always had to be their own strength and say, you know what, why don't you let somebody else be the strength for a bit? Let somebody else carry this for a bit. I think that's powerful, you know, and, um, and my, my hope in my life is that I can do that for some kids and, and of course, just the, the foundational piece is just there's got to be a way to break the cycle. And I think, you know, prayerfully, we've done that um, in in my family. I, I think, you know, the trauma goes back two to three generations in my family. And I think we can honestly say at this point, you know, by the grace of God, we've, we've broken that cycle. Um, and now it's up to the next generation to hold the line and, and make sure that it doesn't that it doesn't repeat itself, you know, but that's, that, that's the message that I hope to get out there is that we can, we can be successful. We can come out of this. And and if, if we'll be humble enough about it to face it, because I think that's the hardest part. Um, We're so busy being strong. We're so busy surviving, um, but thriving is different from surviving. You know, you don't thrive until you face the beast and you you vanquish it. And it's never completely done, but you have to be willing to address it. You have to be willing to, um, to look it in the face. And, you know, in my life, it's been tough for me to do that, but I've had to. And, um, and I think that if we can, offer people the hope that they can look it in the face and come out on the other side. And I think that that gives them the opportunity, uh, sets them up for success. You know, I think there's a, <laughs> an old scripture. I'm going to, I'm not even going to try and come up with the book chapter and verse. I believe it's in Deuteronomy that says that the sins of the father are visited upon the third and fourth generation. And I think that mm-hmm. that's the truth of, of what we are, our experience of having seen kids in care are because, one particular um, set of kids that we had, I, I was talking with a local police officer that I know, and he talks about, tells, told me, he said, I remember when their mom was a foster kid. 
it was mm. it was a generational thing and so often it is and you see it and you go yeah yeah we're, we need to break the cycle and i love the fact that not only do you want to break the cycle but you are breaking the cycle and and you're uh you're changing the lives of how many generations after that yeah uh, that's my prayer um and i hope that you know that's what the book is about uh, the book is about um the book is a it's a fiction work because i don't have the capacity to write a chronological story of my own past um, but in that fiction work the main character is very reflective. And so I try to pass on some of the things that I have learned and that the, that the Lord has used to bring healing and, and growth into my own life. But I try to pass that on through the characters. And so there's a reality of trauma. That's kind of the context, but then there's, there's how do you come through that? And, and uh, how do you look at, look at these kids and, and the situation they're in and, and be very aware, you know, it's the tiny things that you don't think about that mean the most sometimes. Um, and so that's what I'm hoping to communicate in the story that I've written, that it, it will just offer some healing and maybe do that in a way that is non-confrontational uh, because I know that, uh, faith sometimes is a very confrontational thing, even when it isn't intended to be. And so hopefully by by approaching those things through narrative and and just reflection, it's not it's not confrontational. That's my goal. Well, I really appreciate you coming here and telling your story today, man, because it's not until people tell their story and show how they walked out the other side of this trauma, these difficult places that that people begin to believe that they can actually walk out of these hard places. So I really appreciate you um, spending some time to, to do that with us here today, because I'm quite certain that your, um, your story will impact many people and help quite a few people as well, who've been through places that they don't understand. Well, I hope and pray that's true. I thank you for having me on. It was, it was a joy to talk to you. And, uh, man, keep doing what you guys do. Um, you know, part of my story in, in the book that I wish was part of my story in real life was, was adoption. You know, I was adopted into God's family, but I was never adopted into a human family. And so what you guys do in terms of providing permanence, um, cannot be overstated and i think that there's a lot of kids out there that are longing for that safe place just to know that that i'm never going to have to worry about where i'm going to sleep again and for all the people out there that are listening that that's your story that's what god has called you and I applaud you so much for making the sacrifices that it takes to do that. That means more uh, to you than, than I could possibly say. Well, I appreciate the kind words. Okay, Foster Care Nation, thank you for listening to Philip's story. Now take his knowledge and wisdom to heart so you can create love and healing in your family and community. 
Be sure to come back next week. We have new episodes every Tuesday. If you'd like to share your story as a guest, you can reach us at Jason at fostercarenation.com. You can connect with other like-minded people on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash fostercareuj. And don't forget, we have an account over at Buy Me a Coffee. It's like a virtual tip jar where you can help us fund our mission for as little or as much as you want. It's at buymeacoffee.com slash fostercare. The links to everything are in show notes in your podcast player or at fostercarenation.com. And as always, you are so super awesome. I thank you guys. Oh, cool, cool, cool. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for listening. Thanks, thanks, thanks. Unparalleled <laughs> Studios. <laughs>